You're listening to the latest sermon from Our Saviour Lutheran Church in Fareham. For more information about Our Saviour Lutheran Church, visit our website at www.oslc.org.uk. oslc.org.uk. May God bless you richly through his word. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty Father, your Son was manifested to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration in his glory, in preparation for his suffering and death and resurrection. As we meditate on your word, grant that we too may have a vision, by faith, of him who is our Saviour, who suffered and was glorified, so that we might share in his glory. This we ask in his holy name. Amen. There is a clear parallel between our Old Testament reading and the Gospel of the Transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. In both cases, we have a mountain and a select group of people on that mountain in the presence of something glorious. There is a cloud covering the mountain. There's a voice from the cloud speaking. And we even have a parallel in the number of days. We're told that after Moses and Joshua returned to the mountain for six days, the cloud was on the mountain and on the seventh day the voice spoke. And Likewise, Jesus uh, ascended the Mount of Transfiguration, the holy mountain, after six days. Now, these are the parallels and they're important they help us to understand exactly what is going on on the Mount of Transfiguration there is much more that can be said than those parallels but those are the things we will be meditating on today because on that first occasion the mountain in question was Mount Sinai and we are in chapter 24 of Exodus that's uh, and, and just for reference, the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20. So Moses has received the Ten Commandments and other laws from God for the space of a few chapters. And then after Moses receives this first tranche, if you like, of laws and commandments, he goes down back to the people. And he told them all the words of the Lord and all the rules, as we heard. And at that point, something very significant takes place. The covenant at that point is confirmed by a sacrifice and by the sprinkling of blood and by an oath. But that oath is taken by the people. God has said... This is my covenant with you. These are my rules. These are my commandments. And the people say, we will be obedient. And upon that oath, they are sprinkled with blood. Now, the sprinkling of blood and the shedding of blood at covenants was not just a a peculiarity of this particular moment. Indeed, in the Hebrew language, you don't make covenants, you cut them. Covenants are cut. 
because not only divine and uh, covenants but also human covenants were marked by sacrifice you might remember from genesis when god made a covenant with abraham he was preceded by abraham taking a number of different animals and he cut them in half and then he kept the flies and animals away from them and what happened was that abraham fell asleep as time passed and then a fire passed through these uh, animals cut in half and god made a covenant with abraham that is to say that although Abraham provided the sacrificial animals, it was God who made who gave the make the oath. It was God who took the action. Abraham offered the animals. God himself, in fact, provided the fire. Whereas at this particular covenant, it's the other way around. The people provide the animals and they make the sacrifice and they make the oath. But the purpose of this cutting of the covenant was even in a, there was no such thing as a secular setting, but in a, in a setting where people made covenants with, with one another was twofold. First of all, the, it was common, not universal, but common in these ancient covenants that you would make a sacrifice of an animal and the blood would be applied in some way to the parties of the covenant and the message was something along the lines of, may, it be done to, may this be done to me also if I break this covenant. So that whether it was kings or tradespeople made this covenant, they placed themselves, if you like, under a blood oath to be faithful to that covenant. And secondly, the sacrificial animal was eaten jointly. So fellowship, table fellowship was declared at that point. The two parties sat down as friends around a common meal. And so when the people made that covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai, they made an oath and they were sprinkled with blood and there was a sacrifice and the book of covenant was read and they said, we will do all this. We will be obedient. And Moses said to the people as he sprinkled them with blood, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All his words and all their words. They were bound by a blood oath to be obedient. And I don't have to tell you how that went, you know. In short, in three words, not very well. And it's an amazing thing that it took nearly a thousand years before God finally banished the rest of his people. After their repeated breaking of the covenant, which began while they were still at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because you don't get to the end of the book of Exodus. Moses has, goes, has gone back up to the mountain at the end of this chapter, as we heard. And by the time he comes down the next time, they've made the golden calf. We will be obedient, at least for the rest of this day. I'm not sure about tomorrow. And here we see the necessary fragility of the covenant of the law. The covenant of the law that is based on our obedience 
It cannot last. Not because there's anything wrong with the law. The law is good and holy and true. And when God gives us his law, he speaks to us good words and holy words and true words. But we are not. We may sincerely and genuinely and with great effort resolve to be obedient. But I would very strongly advise you against taking any blood oaths based on your obedience. Because it will end really badly for you. And, but even then, even under this very imperfect covenant that was that rested so significantly on the oath of, and the promise of the people, God responds by a heavenly vision. Not all the people, but the representatives of the people. Moses and Aaron, Nabah and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. They went up, so the representatives of the whole nation, they go up on the mountain and they behold, we are told this strange thing that is nowhere commented on, it's simply narrated. They saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel, whom, of whom it was said that you cannot see him and live. Now it's important and significant and maybe, maybe something to, for another time that we are not told that they saw the glory of God which no one can see. Even Moses wasn't allowed to see the glory of God but they saw the God of Israel. What they saw we're not told. And I imagine that it cannot be told. But they saw what was under his feet. And there was this, the description of this pavement of sapphire stone. If you imagine the firmament of heaven, like the, the cupola that covers the earth, the ima Im image that is given is like we are now above that, we are on the other side of it. That this blue sapphire, this clear, heavenly clear, the sky clear sub, uh, for is underneath, not over us. In other words, by ascending to the mountain, they ascended to heaven, briefly. And what did they do? They beheld God and they ate and they drank. They held a feast there in the presence of God. God was pleased to have this table fellowship, this friendship meal with them, even in spite of what was to come. But it was Moses alone who heard the voice after they after they departed after they went down we are told that the mountain was covered by a cloud and that's when the glory of the Lord came to dwell on Mount Sinai if you like the very essence of, of God's presence they beheld God but now the glory of the Lord descended and no one was allowed to see it Moses alone was in his presence, but even there the cloud covered this mountain. And there we see again a second feature of the covenant of the law. That God remains distant in an important way. That there is, there needs to be a mediator, in this case Moses, and then later on in the temple, the priesthood, between God's glory and the people because of their sin. They cannot enter into God's presence. Even in the temple, which has the place of God's presence, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest can enter, and, and even he 
once a year on the Day of Atonement, when blood is shed for the atonement of the people as opposed to blood shed to bind them into a covenant of works. Because of sin, the people cannot draw near. And we are told that they were filled with fear when they saw the thunder and the clouds and heard the voice on the sound of the thunder on the mountain. When they simply witnessed the effects of God's presence, they trembled with fear and asked Moses that they wouldn't have to hear or see any more. So you go up, we'll stay here. And no one, not even an animal, was allowed to step onto the mountain without his invitation. And the only one who was invited was Moses. And there he stood between God in his glory and the people in their sin. And he received words and he transmitted them. But they themselves could not draw near. And yet that sight was awesome in the original sense of the word. That was, it was a sight that was filled with awe and wonder. And those who beheld it were filled with fear. So if that is what happens with the covenant of the law, what happens when there's a covenant not of the law, but of the gospel? What kind of event are we anticipating when God reveals something that is eternal because it is no longer in any way dependent on our keeping of the covenant, but it is entirely based on his keeping of the covenant. When he acts no longer through a servant as an intermediary, a mortal sinful man, but he himself enters into the midst of his people to bring about this covenant. What does that look like? Well, on one level, you could say rather disappointing. Yes, we get the cloud. Yes, we get the uh, mountain. Yes, we get the voice from the cloud. But where's the thunder? Where's the lightning? Where are all the witnesses? Where's the, where are the crowds at the foot of the mountain saying, wow, something truly powerful is taking place here? This is where we begin to see, in very bold colours, the stark contrast between the covenant of grace and the covenant of the law. In the covenant of grace, there is no light and sound show. In the covenant of grace, we have just the three witnesses. Even when Jesus is transfigured and shown in his glory, it's done in a humble setting with just Peter, James and John as witnesses. Even when Moses and Elijah come back from the dead and are seen, even when the God the Father speaks from the cloud in the covenant of grace, it's a brief moment, not 40 days, but just a brief moment in humility. Jesus is seen in his glory but there is no sapphire floor. There is no meal. There's not even a shedding of blood yet. Because when Jesus came, as John the uh, evangelist tells us, he came full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, 
but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. And his work, the covenant in his blood, is not an exercise in power and in strength, but it is an exercise in humility and weakness, in which God's power is manifest. Jesus was transfigured on the mountain briefly so that he and his disciples might be prepared for a far greater elevation that was to come. And that greater elevation was displayed under his very opposite, on a smaller hill with less, less glory, on the hill of Golgotha. Jesus was raised just a few feet off the ground and he did not shine like the sun. He was not like the snow, but he was gory and he was beaten and he was humbled and humiliated. But in that humbling and humiliation of Jesus, God was glorified because there all the disobedience of mankind all the failures, both of good intentions like at Sinai and of evil intentions like most of the rest of the time, all of that was washed away. Which is why when Peter rather unwisely began to speak and saying, Lord, it is good that we are here, or if one wanted to be translated somewhat pedantically, you'd say, Peter really said, for us, it's good to be here. We're having a good time. Let's stay here. God the Father interrupted Peter. While he was still speaking, a voice was heard. Shut up, Peter. You're not the one to speak here now. You don't know what you're talking about. You see, what we had, what came just before the transfiguration was Peter's confession of Jesus which was followed by Jesus' first revelation to his disciples of his coming death. And when he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, Far be from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Peter, who confessed Jesus Christ in one moment, the next moment is being told that he's a Satan because he's trying to hinder the work of God. And then Jesus began to talk to his disciples about them taking up their crosses as he was going to take up his. And after six days of this, from this, he was transfigured before them. And you can imagine Peter saying, oh, this is so much better. This is so much better than the other stuff that Jesus is talking about. Let's stay here. This is good. Because who wants to cross? Who wants to see Jesus mangled on, a, on an instrument of torture? We want everyone to see Jesus in his glory. And this temptation, by the way, still remains with us. To measure the work of God by what our eyes see and what is impressive to us. To be envious of places that draw big crowds and to be despondent about things that are less impressive. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. 
If anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It might seem like it's good to be here, Peter, but no. The voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You listen to him, not to your own heart. You listen to him and not to the world. Listen to him and not to anyone or anything else. And when the cloud lifted, Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. Perfect love casts out all fear and the perfect love of Jesus casts out our fear. It casts out our fear in the face of our sins. It casts casts out our fear in the presence of God's judgment. It casts out our fear in the presence of death and the envy and the anger and the wrath of the world because the love of Jesus overcomes all these things. They saw lifted up their eyes and saw no one but Jesus only. They saw no one but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They saw no one but him who died so that our sins and our disobedience might be put away once and for all. And in that moment they beheld Jesus. There was no eating and drinking then. But that too would come. Not long after, in another setting, Jesus spoke again with the disciples, all the disciples present now, and said, take heed, this is my body given for you. Take drink, this is the cup. This cup is a New Testament in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. And they beheld Jesus, and they ate and they drank. And today, dear friends, we still do the same. This is a less frightening place than Sinai, a less impressive place than the Mount of Transfiguration, but here too we behold God and we eat and we drink. That is to say that this lino floor here is a better floor for us to behold than the the sapphire stone of Mount Sinai because we are in the presence of God not on account of our promise but on account of his promise. Not by the sprinkling of blood of animals that we have brought but by our, our being sprinkled by God himself by the blood of his son Jesus Christ who gave himself as a sacrifice for sins whose blood is the blood of the covenant that will never be overthrown or overturned by even by our sin, because that covenant is an overturning of our sin. It cannot be thwarted, it cannot be undone, because it is the very covenant of the obedience of the Son of God for us and on our behalf, who became for us sin, so that we in him might be the righteousness of God. You can take comfort, dear friends, and reassurance in the knowledge that this Jesus, who was briefly glorified, was thereafter shamed and disgraced for your sins. But he is no longer in shame and disgrace, but he sits now in everlasting glory at the right hand of God the Father, so that you too might one day be transfigured, glorified by him and in him. And we will behold him face to face for all eternity. We'll be nourished and cherished by him for all eternity. When he takes away not only the sins that we have committed, but sin itself will be abolished. Death will be put away. And our shame and our weakness 
will be transfigured and transformed into glory and honor after the likeness of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Until that day, keep beholding Jesus in his word. Keep gathering to where he calls you. Keep feeding and drinking with the food of heaven and the drink of heaven, by which you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. To him be all glory in the church, now and forever, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.